Well, my name is Palsy. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. So we're covering our topics that we've covered in the past week or so. I just want to acknowledge new space. You have rejigged our little, I don't know what we're going to call it, studio. Mm-hmm. And it looks quite different. Yeah. So originally, because we, we had the old studio, which you might yeah. recall. Uh, but there were some drawbacks to it. It was like in a noisy workshop. It was kind of like way upstairs. And what I was going to do is move out uh, of the place and move into a place that had a space where we could build our own studio. Um, that's kind of difficult right now because uh, COVID restrictions have made like actual moving place and stuff more difficult. Mm. Um, so I have set up the studio in here by completely reshaping the living area. Now, it's not possible to use it as a living area anymore because we're <laughs> surrounded by lighting and the structure is completely thing and we're currently facing the wrong way. Um, but it does seem to be functional. So what I will do is when when the opportunity arises, uh, we'll go to Ikea or whatever and start filling out the background and, and whatnot. Because previously we had these prints that would stick on the wall yeah. and look good, but obviously there's curtains behind us. So we need to probably build stands and stuff like that. So we'll fill it out. Um, a few other things I want to do, maybe maybe sort of darken the curtains a bit, um, build that contrast between the, the front and the back. Um, so maybe swap out the curtains for like black curtains or something. Uh, but yeah, that's there's still plans, but hopefully this yeah. is much more satisfying. Yeah, yeah, it's like a makeshift thing. I don't know, it's kind of weird, right? Like when you watch a YouTube, you're like, wow, it looks so good. But then you realize like it could all be, I don't know. <laughs> You're never, you're never satisfied is yeah, the problem, right? Yeah, you, you, once you get the bug, it's it's like people who buy boats and things like that. They keep adding to it and it's, it's the same sort of thing with the YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. And there's always some place to take it. Mm-hmm. That's true. So how's your week been? What is new in Christmas World? Uh, well, not that much really. Um, you know, been working on my book. Um, discovered a, a really so uh, a book was recommended to me to read mm. uh, uh, by uh, a researcher on love relationships uh, by by Dr. Sue Johnson. It's called, okay. Now, it's not a book that I would ever pick up just the bookstore because it's called Hold Me Tight, which is a very <laughs> corny like emasculine sort of title it, it sounds like this book you get from like well it is like the supermarket and yeah now it, the title makes perfect sense when you read the content right but when you pick it looks like a trashy romance or something uh and thus it just doesn't have a marketable appeal in that way. So if it wasn't specifically recommended to me by someone I trusted, yeah. there's just no way I would pick it up. But it was quite an extraordinary read. Uh, it, it talks about... So you know those people who are in relationships who they love each other and everything, but they're always having massive fights. They're just stormy. There's lots of drama. They're yeah. always having the... like. It's very explosive. And people kind of wonder why are these people together? Like they, they, they're obviously not making each other happy. Um, well, this book uh, is a very clinical research into exactly those types of relationships, relationships filled with massive amounts of drama and why it is mm. that this happens. And it, it has taken like a huge amount of the mystery out of it in a good way um, to show that actually people can have uh, like 
the, it actually explains these these arguments. So the, the arguments you read, because what it is is like a dialectic. So people, she has all these examples of, you know, person A, person B having their discussion and then they turn into an argument and a fight and how one, you know, becomes, you know, attacking and the other becomes avoidant and blah, blah, blah. And, mm. uh, and you read it mm. and it is exactly like all the different fights you might have seen between your parents. Like mm. these kinds of things are just so textbook, right, because of the pioneering work of this, uh, this professor. Um, it's a story of great hope because the, the, she says, look, you can actually work what's behind all this and solve it in a way that people stop doing that. And uh and there are, there are um, relationships that, that where couples have been going on like this for many years and that divorce seems imminent. And, yeah. Uh, and all it is is an attachment theory. So the basic theorem of the book is that a love relationship is, is actually uh, an attachment, right? Mm. So it's like parents and children. It's a different sort of attachment, but it fills the same need. It fills the need for an adult that children have with their parents as children, right? And, uh, and what this is different to transactional. So historically, love relationships are viewed as transactional fundamentally, i.e. Uh, you fall in love with someone that has something to offer you. You don't know what it is consciously, but the chemical reaction happens because you have something for them and they have something for you. Yeah. But it's, it's more fundamental than that. It actually, it actually uh, feeds a real human need. So when someone attacks someone and has an explosive argument, what they're really saying is, I don't feel safe in this attachment, right? Which is why the hold me tight thing is 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 the thing. But it goes into considerable clinical detail right, as right. to why this is. And I find the argument incontrovertible. I'm a very critical person, as anyone who watches this knows. If I didn't agree with it, I would be very um yeah, you know, I was I was skeptical of the book when I first picked it up. Yeah. Uh, but I've been absolutely persuaded. Mm. by the logic and also the the clinical recommendation for couples who are in that mm. situation to to get their way out of it so if you are in that situation or, or you have other people who you just you just know exactly who i'm talking about when i mentioned it like couples that are always like this give them this it, it could change their life and i mean that significantly yeah. seriously i mean that's what they say in terms of like how critical it is to develop good relationships early life like as when you're a child <laughs> Because mm. it really has a flow and effect in adulthood. Absolutely does. Absolutely does. But it, but that but also fate doesn't determine that as well. Like so, uh, and, and this was clear in the book is that people who have these problems in childhood, absolutely as you say, have these attachment issues as, as adults. Mm. But it's not it's not a fate to complete. Um, what it means is it's, it's harder for those people to mm. do this in a healthy way, but it's not impossible and. and so not only does the the author identify this problem, mm. right, and and give clear examples as to how it works, yeah, uh, but they she also provides a wonderful roadmap of how people can work through these problems and solve them permanently. Uh, and so for people that have just been locked in this cycle where yeah. you know someone will say some offhanded comment and the other person blows up and the other person then reacts to that and blah yeah. blah blah. People can break that cycle by understanding what's actually driving it yeah, and yeah. talking to those specific root causes. And, and 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 people can take themselves out of this 
spiral that they're in mm. uh, and, and solve their relationships. I think it's a really underrated book. I think the title has a lot to do with it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but honestly, I think it's a seminal breakthrough work Is in understanding like how love works. Is it like line as the, um, those five love languages or do they refer to that too? Uh, sort of, it's not, really. not well. I mean, it, you can um, obviously, you know, there are different types of of love relationships and love communication. But it's no, it's it's more it's more focused. It's okay. it's basically saying, look, think of those people that are in these fiery, dramatic arguments mm-hmm. all the time. People who 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 you know were once happy but are no longer happy, and they they don't know what's wrong, and they don't know how to fix it, and they're, they're basically on the brink of divorce. Um, that the fundamental problem a lot of the time between these people is that their attachments have not felt secure and uh, uh, they can solve this problem. So um, it, it, it's it's actually really like romantic in a way that, that people still love each other, right? Mm. Uh, and she may, there's a line in the book that I find really powerful. She says, love relationships is the only type of relationship where negative feedback is better than no feedback, right? So these these um, fiery arguments that people get into, mm. they are actually expressing that they care in those arguments, right? Because you know, if you don't care about someone, you don't bother, right? Yeah. Um, but if if they get to you, if they're hurting you, and you're hurting them back, mm. um, that that actually is a perverse demonstration of affection. So uh, they she she does say that. Um, uh, you know, the conversation you need to have is A, B, C, and D. And yeah. if you follow that script, I, I, and she's got, you know, many years of clinical practice behind her to, to back it up. Mm. Um, I, I think that this is a real a real breakthrough. And the fact, that, I mean, the book came out like 10 years ago, so it's been out a while, yeah. um, but obviously it takes a while for, you know, it to become like accepted you know, clinical practice and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I'm sure when it came out, it would have been controversial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, pick it up. Pick up and have a read because uh, I, I know plenty of couples who are massively dramatic um, who really feel helpless that they can't get through it. They know they care about each other, right? Yeah. And they want things to be better. Uh, and yet, uh, because the way they set each other off, um, mm. they think that they're a lost cause. And in fact, no, this is actually quite natural mm. uh, and easy, well, not easy, but 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 able to be fixed and solved permanently and to put every and to, to reclaim those things that people actually both want. So mm. um, so pick up that book, uh, Hold Me Tight by uh, uh, Dr. Professor Sue Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you are having arguments with your your loved one, you want the relationship to work. Um, couldn't recommend it enough. Great. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I sometimes fall down the rabbit hole of like watching or listening to like divorce lawyers <laughs> and just kind of seeing what they see as a poor relationship or how they got there. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting. It's always good to go to the experts who see this all the time of how to find, you know, ways to improve the relationships. Yeah. yeah, and and the like the first thing you notice in this book is that you're not unique, right? Like, oh, yeah, there are many not. people who are in that same situation. Like the the things that come out of these people's mouths in the book are exactly what you've heard a million times before. Even if you feel like you're special, but the problem is there's a huge amount of shame, right? Like people don't want to mm. tell people they're having issues. 
Well, thing is, like, the typical fairy tale, right, ends up being, you know, guy and girl meet, they might have an argy-bargy, and then they resolve their problems, and they get married and live happily ever after. There's Mm. no, like, post-marriage, here's all the problems we have to face together in order to tackle the world. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the, the examples are superb in that they're quite... They go through different personality types. Mm. Um, so people who, you know, over-intellectualize things versus people that are, you know, a bit more emotive and so on. Uh, they're, they're great examples. Um, and I agree with you. It's just a, like we, we have this, yeah, yeah, it all solves itself out. Like the whole, you know, you'll meet the right person, everything will work out is, yeah. is something that, oh, you'll just know. I mean, goodness me, what, is there any worse advice <laughs> in it, it, that any parent can give their kids, right? Uh, the you know, it, it, relationships require work and love, mm. love is natural, but it's not enough, right? You need, yeah. you, need you need to, like, you can, you can love really badly. Um, and so, uh, you know, just to see a text that in a very methodical way, clear way, but also empathetic way, like you, you people see themselves in this work, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, can solve these problems. So I'm, I'm really, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but I'll leave it there. But but pick up the book. Yeah. We'll perhaps we'll perhaps do a book review at some future point. Yeah, mm. sure, sure, cool. So this past week, mm-hmm. you talked about Elon Musk and Neuralink. Oh my goodness, I was so fascinated when I watched that video of like just the monkey doing the game and then it's unplugged itself. And man, I was like Black Mirror vibes <laughs> in a way. Um, and some people have said that, like, oh, we're still a long way to go. But are we really, like, if we can control things with our mind through animals are similar to us, like... Yeah, and when we say there's a long way to go, a long way to go to what destination? And also, uh, if we think computers 30 years ago, mm. right, so before the internet even, yeah, uh, well, versus the today, yeah. right, if we've got... A technology that can already integrate with like computer systems mm. in such a way that even a, a monkey can, can play a game to an exceptional standard um, using nothing but its brain, mm. uh, then 30 years is another world. I mean, the, the whole human race. If you think about how, how our interactions have changed since the internet, mm. uh, this is a, a change at least on that on that spectrum. So uh that's that's the first point second point that the key takeaway from the video that i did right is is i introduced an idea which is if you think about our interconnectivity on a spectrum between zero and a hundred mm-hmm. right so this is the way i conceive it i'm putting it out there for for people to use as a, as a tool okay so zero being that we don't have any electronic forms of communication at all. Everything is by pigeon, right? <laughs> and we, uh, if we have interactions, it's almost certainly on a person-to-person level. We're yeah. in our sort of triumphs, in our village. Uh, and if we want to to communicate with someone, we have to physically get up and go somewhere. Okay. Yeah. And then at a hundred is what I would call the Borg singularity, right? The the Borg from Star Trek, which is a collective consciousness. There are no individuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all a collective identity. And they share thoughts, emotions, directions, goals, dreams, ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who controls that? Well, that's a complicated question from the Star Trek franchise. There is a... like originally they were conceived as just a collective consciousness, which they all just 
like agree. Yeah. Um, but they do have uh, a Borg queen that was introduced, um, who who help who is the one who is many. It's a, it's a kind of a complicated relationship of of hive mind nexus. Uh, mm. But that's that's not the point. Point is that a um, hundred is where you lose all of your individual identity. Yeah. And uh, you have all shared thoughts shared goals, shared directions, and shared causes of action, right? Yeah. So zero being absolute individuality and 100 being no individuality. We are already along that spectrum, okay? Because if you take like the mobile phone, basically everybody has a mobile device that is also like a little mini supercomputer that allows them Mm -hmm. to do everything. So, you know, communicate, uh, use their social media, share information, experiences, ideas, gain banking. information, banking, yeah. uh, calendars, their, where they're going on the map, mm. ge- like their physical geological location is known pretty much throughout the world. Mm. Uh, they can order all kinds of food and, and their transportation. So, so it's with them, you know, awakens them, you know, their alarm clock. They have it within their arm's reach basically 24-7, seven days a week, right? So... That device is almost an extension of their own body, yeah. right? And in the Star Trek universe, the Borg, if a individual, a drone, is is separated from the collective, so cut off from the hive mind, all they can think about is rejoining the collective, mm. and they're overwhelmed with anxiety when they realize that they're alone. They can't hear the voices, right? They're not longer connected to the collective. Mm. Okay. Uh, if you separate someone from their mobile phone, you kind of observe that. Now, remember, the Borg were invented well before mobile phones, right? So um, the, yeah. the, if, if someone is separated from the internet, right, and, and their phone and their ability to connect and get the news and share information and check their Facebook feed and so on, yeah. they are experiencing anxiety, right? And, 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 and You can't really live in this world without the internet or your mobile phone. Well, I mean that's that's a debate. I think that Can most we? people choose not to, but um, I certainly can't access some government stuff that I need to get to without a mobile phone. Yeah, well, there's certain limitations that are placed on you if you don't have access to the internet. So, like, it's it's certainly harder in that respect. Mm. Uh, but we do lose something when we're like, for example, uh, we kind of imagine mobile phones being subservient to us. Right, that, that, that we, um, you know, have a desire and a will, and that the mobile phone faithfully carries out that will. Mm. But in actual fact, uh, you know, when we get notifications, when we get, uh, you know, the, the mobile phone doesn't feel like it's gotten enough attention, mm. um, it it will let us know that, and we will jump to treat it like a little baby, and and uh, mm. and, and constantly checking it. So it's not like so. Sometimes we we check it just because we haven't done it for a little while, you know. Um, not because we have a specific task we need mm. to carry out, okay? And, and for that reason, we are kind of a slave to this technology as much as it is a servant of us. Mm. Uh, and so we are already along this, you know, line of connectivity. So the, the key point of the video is that what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink is massively pushing us along that curve, right? Yeah. Um, that we're, we're already, you know somewhere along that line, but we're going to be far closer to a human singularity once we all have microchips in our brains and are communicating in real time and controlling everything with our minds, right? Mm. Um, 
Oh, it'd just be really cool to go to my house and then like just walk in and the lights are already on because I want the lights on. <laughs> I know that's like... Well, the threat... I mean, here's the thing. The, the threshold, I think, is when people stop having individualised experiences. So, for example, at the moment, if you go on holiday, yeah. you'll take all these happy snaps and you'll upload them and share them on Facebook or whatever and then you'll get feedback mm-hmm. from the collective, which is the internet as to you know your experiences and they've, they've taken a part of your experiences because you have shared it with them right mm-hmm. um whereas in the future if we are all sharing things pretty much constantly all of the time yeah. um then one person might have an experience and we all have that experience right mm. uh, and that is that's a dramatic shift and and what's more i'm sure this is elon musk's goal because in the video as i said you know, they talk about helping the disabled to walk and, and all that, which I, I think is amazing and a potential for this technology. But in reality, Elon's doing this because he wants to transform the human race. Mm. He sees that the general artificial intelligence is inevitable, that, that basically we create a self-aware technology that can improve itself mm. and that that technology will be something we are unable to control. And that will ultimately potentially replace us. And Elon's solution is that, look, we can't stop that from happening. What we can do is we compete with it. We can come along this journey. Mm. And the way to do that is to link up everyone's brains so that we have a collective like intelligence, right? To, to break the bounds of the human brain to make it a collective brain. Mm. And that is I his, don't know his goal, can... right? Um, and it's How do you govern that? <laughs> Well, there's, I mean, there's immense risk. Like, as I said in the video, like, what, what would China do with that technology? You know, is it, is it, all, is it all sweet kumbaya or is it like yeah. we're going to control our population? Um, I think the, the answers to those questions are quite uncomfortable. Uh, so what my video was really is an urging for the people at Neuralink, Elon himself, to consider these issues as we progress the technology. They've opened Pandora's box. It's an immense breakthrough. And look, there is a lot of promising upsides. I mean, mm. you know, how can you tell a quadriplegic that, oh, uh, we're concerned about the dangers of a technology, you know, going forward, even though this is like an amazing breakthrough that allows people to control things with their mind. We can circumvent the, the mm. broken electrical circuits in your body using this technology to allow you to, to operate your body as not. That would just be like mm. such a an amazing thing to see yeah. right that uh it's it seems unconscionable to to deny that if we have that ability uh and yet we at the, while we're talking about the upsides we we do need to discuss the 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 risks and how to mitigate them because we have experienced immense drawbacks already by technology like we 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 have real problems we've talked uh, on a few occasions about how our relationships are suffering because of how the apps are working and what's that's doing to courtship and 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 the distribution of of relationships and and the levels of of sex that people are having and all that sort of stuff. Um, they, these are technologically driven problems, okay, that have come about because we have increased this connectivity, but we're also becoming more alone at the same time. Mm. And this, as I said, is going to push us along that spectrum. So. As we ramp up the positives of what we're experiencing with the current connected world, we're also very likely to ramp up the negatives. Uh, and, we, and we're seeing it. And as I said, China is a perfect example of how they're using technology uh, to, to you know, enforce uh, their social credit system and control on the population. 
Um, there's no reason to think that by integrating directly into the human brain that we're going to diminish that in any way. So shouldn't we, since we've already experienced some of the problems of moving down this journey, yeah. have serious conversations about how we can mitigate those problems, knowing that this technology is now in the works okay and i think Neuralink and like the best place to start that conversation is with people who are currently building the technology because they're the smart people they know where their vision is and where they want to take it mm. and they do need a bit of a red teaming to be like okay well, what about this what about that and how do you solve this and how do you solve that so as they solve the biological synthetic integration problems that yeah. come with you know putting stuff in your brain they also solve the ethical social uh, identity problems and, and it's kind of a, ironic because Elon on the one hand is clearly libertarian mm. he was very much against lockdowns of the, the COVID and he moved everything out of California because of what he saw as oppressive yeah, practices yeah. and stuff and moved to Texas uh, he's always on the kind of uh, based kind of programs Joe Rogan and so on talking about you know he's, he's put, he puts memes up on Twitter kind of laughing at people who are who are SJWs and things so he's clearly a, a libertarian based kind of guy right he mm. believes in individual freedom and yet he's, he's creating technology that is eroding <clears throat> individual identity yeah yeah uh, so yeah it is important to to have that conversation uh, as we go and I think because he's already that way inclined he's probably open to those conversations i apologize if my voice is is going a bit croaky yeah yeah no look i don't know i don't know because well then again i'm not in this technology space and no idea the only threshold of me understanding the dangerous technology is what like again like i said black mirror and Mm -hmm. there's an episode right it basically you have like a chip in your brain and you can go back and see your memories like in HD. You just upload to a TV and you can see it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And then at the end of the episode, they like this person just takes it out because it was just too much suffering in terms of like reliving these memories of like what they, they couldn't move on like kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, it's a quite incredible. Yeah. There is definitely upsides, but there is downsides and to this, and if we go too quickly, man, I want to go back to the nineties when just technology was like, yes, flying cars. That's what I want. <laughs> Faster horses. <laughs> but now it's like, let's just control everything around us. Internet of things. Oh my goodness. You also talked about quotas, right? And the role of quotas is in our society. I so mean, diversity quotas, gender quotas. Yeah. Yeah. Gender quotas. Yeah. Diversity quotas. And I think fundamentally you're like, it's a bad idea. Unless it involves politics or the role of the quota is to improve representation. So the, the, it's a bad idea as an ideology. It's not the first choice in any situation. But the ultimate goal, uh, it, it could be beneficial if it serves productivity. Uh, and the way in which that could occur is you always want the best person for the job. Yeah, right? of course. And you want uh, people to be judged fairly uh, and you want uh, everyone who's capable to put themselves forward to be properly assessed. <clears throat> if you have a culture within a particular workplace, particular environment, where highly capable people who are interested in the work mm. look at that and go... 
you know, it's a massive boys club or it's like a hen circle. And mm. I just don't see myself fitting in. Mm. Okay. That's not a good reason to uh to sustain the status quo because you're 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 foregoing that person's contribution, even though they might be the most capable, qualified, skilled, talented uh yeah. person for that particular job. Mm-hmm. Uh and what's more, they're interested. Now, it is absolutely true that the majority of uh, gender distribution bias within particular roles is primarily a matter of personality and choice. That is that on aggregate, men to be tend to be more interested in things. So engineering, computer science, yeah. you know, tools, technologies. But even cars. like more dangerous things. <laughs> uh, well, they're, they're greater risk takers on average yeah. as well, yeah. Uh, and women tend to, on average, be more interested in people. So, you know, like counselling, nursing, uh, dealing with individuals. Um, childcare. Childcare, teaching, that sort of stuff. So... Um, that is a that is a gender bias that is based in our evolutionary psychology and personal choice, and so we shouldn't use social pressure to overcome that unless mm. we see a deficiency in uh, in outcome. Well, yeah. So, for an example, might be look, there's not enough male teachers in primary school, right? Yeah. And then they and kids could benefit from more male role models. So you might mm. employ social pressure for the benefit of the child, which mm. is the the product, if you like. In order to um, to promote that, right? But then there's also uh, you want to change the culture so as that people who are interested in the work and capable aren't deterred by the culture. Okay, so so that's the 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 main reason, main argument for quotas based, mm-hmm. I think, in a conservative, you know, viewpoint of of best person for the job. Right? If it helps you find the best person for the job, mm-hmm. they're not prevented from applying. Um, then quotas may temporarily be beneficial this is a the key word temporarily because once you've got your culture, culture changed yeah. then it should just continue on as the culture it becomes the new normal right yeah and thus uh you want to take those training wheels off and allow it to continue to go and yeah. then you have both um sexes for example if you talk male and female mm. happy to apply for the job if they want to because yeah. they see others like them yeah but there is certainly uh, it's certainly not the first choice. And in fact, even strong advocates of it seem surprisingly reluctant to get on a plane flown by someone who's a diversity hire. That's That was the kind of point of the, yeah. the, the United Airlines point, is that actually at the end of the day, for all the ideology, for all of the... Um, and, and this is why I think intersectionality and... Uh, you know, that sort of BLM and all that sort of stuff will ultimately fail is because at the core of people's ideas in, the, in their, their, their kind of um, flight or flight responses, you know, very fundamental essence of a human being, they actually don't care what people look like and they don't care what sex people are. They just want the best person. So and it, it, nothing makes that more mm. crystal than when their lives depend on it, right? Mm. If you're If you're being on a plane and it's flown by someone who is not the best person to be flying the plane yeah. people have a high degree of anxiety regardless of the person's skin color or genitalia right yeah. um it, it, and and that's what that happened with the united airlines when they when they published that thing that they're going to have 50 50 kind of people of color you know gender etc 
uh, is they were lampooned. I think even by people who would otherwise be sympathetic to the idea, mm. um, simply because when people get on a plane, they want to know that they're in safe hands, mm. not the person that had to be let in because of their, their color of their skin, right? Mm. Um, that's not going to help you fly a plane. So I just think it's, I mean, like, yeah, I totally agree until the meritocracy, but I think the intention was kind of, I kind of understood from the left side of like, oh, like you're going to try to encourage people like experience advantage to have a chance of, you know, being skillful in, in to be able to fly a plane, like who didn't have the opportunity previously. Right. Like maybe, I don't know. Like, Well, that's... this is a weird thing. So, so the, the other argument, which I didn't cover in the video, which I think you're alluding to is like, what if you have someone who's highly capable, but they're from a disadvantaged background, they haven't had the opportunity to go to the best schools and get into the best education and, and thus, uh, don't they deserve an opportunity to, to succeed? And I absolutely wholeheartedly 100% agree with that sentiment, but it's not, it shouldn't be done at the end point. It should be done at the beginning point. You go, okay, how do we maximize the equality of opportunity between people so that those that are capable can actually go get the education, the opportunity to see. So if someone, if someone, it is an absolute tragedy. Like if you think about, for example, um, like the greatest poet in the, in the history of the world, well, chances are mm. we don't know who they are because they never wrote anything, right? <laughs> like, it's thinking about it seriously. Like, for, for yeah. most of human history, 99% of the population was in agrarian agriculture. Mm. They didn't have the opportunity to build their craft, you know? They didn't have the luxury to sit there and write poetry. It's not for nothing that the most of the, the wonderful writings we have from, like, the first century AD in Rome are from, like, Cicero and mm. and... Uh, Levy and uh, Cassius Dio, these like senators who had, you know, courts of, of slaves and had the luxury to sit there and write their thoughts, you know, Tacitus. Um, th- these, these were high-ranking Romans. And so that's what's handed down to us. That's what we, we have the beneficiary of their insights. Mm. Uh, even, even, even my hero, Marcus Aurelius, was writing a book to himself. Not many people have the time to do that. Um, and so it's, it's quite likely that people's talents have never been discovered. And it's only now, like if you think today, mm-hmm. people have infinitely more opportunity to discover that about their passions and things than they ever mm-hmm. have before, even the poorest among us. Like if you have access to YouTube, uh, you know, access to the internet, you, you can get the world's insights at your doorstep, you can discover those things about you. you may not have the time to develop those things, but you're on your way, okay? Uh, and what we need to do is maximize the identification of talent and interest and mm-hmm. passion and prodigious skills uh, and give those opportunities to develop it. But it's not really helpful um, to say, oh, look at these outcomes mm. and say, oh, it's an unequal outcome, therefore we're going to change the outcomes. Mm. Uh, that, that, that is a real destructive. And when, whenever that's been tried on a, on a societal level, mm. it's led to massive human misery. You go like, okay, for example, in communist countries, you go, oh, uh, all, all this bourgeoisie owns these, these farms in Ukraine. Um, these poor proletariat don't have any opportunity to, to become great farmers themselves. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, get rid of those bourgeoisie farmers and put the proletariat and distribute the land among them and put them in collective farms. And what happened? Everyone died of, of famine, right? Mm. Uh, why? Because they weren't skilled farmers. They, they, <laughs> they couldn't grow the food. Uh, and that led to just mass misery and death. We need to, and, and okay, that's, that's an extreme case, but we could see that pretty much everything we do will be suboptimal in terms of if we just focus on the, on the outcomes. Yeah. The, only, um, the only justification I have for it mm. is on a temporary basis where it's absolutely time-bound and, and where everyone sees it as undesirable, that this is a temporary emergency measure mm. to change something that is identifiably wrong with a culture mm. um, to ensure that the best people for the job are able to find a place for themselves within that job. Uh, and, and the one exception I gave uh, to a degree, um, as I said before, was politics because mm. politics is more than just the best person for the job. It's whoever the, the people want to represent them, right? Yeah. It's a different set of skills. Okay, of course there are certain skills that you want. You want good econ economists, you want good um, ministers, uh, but... At the end of the day, it's not a matter. It's not like a hiring for a corporation, right? It's not like a CEO comes along and says, "Okay, I'm going to have you and you and you." What happens is the people elect the representatives, and from among those representatives, you form a government. Yeah. Uh, so, in that basis, if you're having a representative democracy, then there is a certain inherent desirability to having representatives that represent that democracy, yeah. um, and thus. Uh, having a and I mean one of the one of the the corruptions in in Western democracies at the moment is the narrow backgrounds that they have. So I, I, don't, I don't think although gender is an issue for some parties, um, I think the biggest uh, the biggest challenge to the effectiveness of our democracy at the moment in terms of of who represents us is the narrow range of backgrounds they come from so once political science or law or <laughs> absolutely they all the become they become staffers or they become union representatives and they they attach themselves to existing parliamentarians and then through a series of patronages they get you know their their branches stacked and and uh, get nominated Mm. Uh, and so they get the, you know shepherded into these positions, mm. um, whereas in fact you want people from all walks of life. You want the truck drivers, you want the import people, you want mm. the teachers and the and the police officers, and you want you want all walks of life mm. to have a chance to be represented. If they have a, a cause and a mission, and they can they can sell their their case to their own electorate, uh, that's that's what we want. Yeah. Um, so the biggest challenge at the moment isn't isn't gender, although. Some in some cases is obvious. Um, uh, the biggest problem is, yeah, as you say, that the, the extraordinary narrow emergence of a political class. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, for example, um, someone I did think, like one thing that deters me from politics is like I just don't want to be not liked. <laughs> like I can't afford to not be liked <laughs> in society. Like you just hate it as a politician. Like we're all, I mean, in certain jurisdictions, maybe you're more like others, but still like it's ruthless. And I think, yeah, if you're in the elite, then you don't care. <laughs> like you have all the things behind you that it doesn't matter if you, you stuff up. If you're an everyday person, there's no way like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have more respect for politicians than the average person for exactly the reason that you just mentioned it, that, weirdly most politicians do want to do good like despite everything that people say uh most of the politicians that i met over the course of my life 
actually, for all of the corruption and sordidness and mm-hmm. terrible business of politics, they are there as public servants. Yeah. Uh, and to to deal with the slings and arrows of this grubby game, uh, you do need to have a certain personality, which may not be the type of people we always want to be our representative. So I look, I agree with you, Charlene, that that you know it's it's a culture of savagery, um, and why would people do that to themselves when they've got so many other things they could do? Uh, only the political class seems to be interested. So, so on the one hand, it's there's now this pathway that people kind of narrowly follow to get into politics, mm. but also I think a lot of people that would otherwise be great people are deterred. So it actually reinforces that 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 path, that only the people that are already born into it. As I said, someone was going to, wrote a massively... Uh, interesting book called I think The Luck of Politics mm. and there was Dr. Andrew Lee who's now a politician himself member for, for Frasier uh, he wrote a book talking about how like certain people become elected so for example if you've got if your surname is mm. this like if you're the if you're the son or daughter of a famous politician yeah. you're 400 times more likely to be elected um, so that just tells you how many you know family dynasties and stuff in politics there are Mm. Uh, if, if you're hyphenated, if your name is hyphenated, <laughs> you're infinitely less likely to be elected in a in a House of Representatives. You need to be elected, like so. If you're, if you're your last name. If, yeah, yeah. So if you're if you if your parliament is a proportional system, i.e., like ten percent of the vote will get ten percent of the seats, doesn't yeah. really matter what your name is because they're not voting for you as an individual. They're voting for the party. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. if you just are whatever on the list. So, um, but if you're a single member electorate, so you, you've got your like. 100,000 people or whatever and you're voting for one person, mm. no one votes for the person whose name is hyphenated. Um, the, <laughs> that's so strange. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. The uh, And that's why in the Australian Senate, because we have a bicameral system, so the, the House of Representatives mm. is a single-member electorate and the, and the Senate is a, a proportional rep. Yeah. I think 100% of those people who have um, uh, hyphenated names in the Australian Parliament are in the Senate uh, and, and none are in the House of Representatives. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So it's that, that sort of stuff. But um, so quotas, I, look, I think they they have a place, but they should be temporary, spartan, and rare. Mm, okay, mm. fair mm. enough. Yeah. I like the idea of, like, what the quota could be the outcome. But, yeah, the principle of the quota I don't agree with in terms mm. of just having an arbitrary number for this particular outcome that might look good temporarily but might have, like, long fundamental like long term um well the motivation is key here right so so if the if the motivation is productivity i'm more sympathetic to it if the motivation is reparations for the social injustices of our society where people are underrepresented because the oppressive call you know dominant group Mm. uh, (laughs) that's yeah okay (laughs) and finally i want to finish off with our journey of making Charlie more cultured into the 90s. Mm-hmm. And we watched Gattaca. We did. Yes. And it definitely showed me just how relatable it is in the 21st century, <laughs> considering it was, yeah, way ahead of its time. Incredibly powerful story. Uh, there's, there's two reasons uh, I asked Charlie to watch this film. First is just to talk about that era of cinema. Mm. That is back in the day where not everything was a remake and and 
you know, re-release or live action change from a cartoon, uh, but rather studios on occasion were willing to invest proper big budget money yeah. into good stories that would enhance the prestige of the studio. Mm. So if you think about Gattaca, it's an art house style film, yeah. right? But it has mega stars. It has uh, Jude Law, Uma Thurman, uh, Ethan Hawke, mm. uh, these people who were at the apex of their careers in the 90s. Uh, so they're able to command you know, significant salaries. And to this day, Ethan Hawke talks about this film as easily his favourite film that he's ever done uh, with the best dialogue and the best um, storyline. Mm. Uh, and I, I hasten to agree. So it was a box office failure at yeah. the time, but I don't think that the studio saw it as a cultural failure. I think they saw it as like, you know, this is a hit that we can absorb mm. uh, and it was worth it because it's spectacular film and has since built up a cult status over time the second reason i asked charlie to watch it was of course the story itself which is uh to examine the impact of eugenics uh, uh and and dna testing and sequencing yeah on our society now at the time the genome had just been sequenced and this was seen as like you know the next kind of frontier science breakthrough the human genome you know we could identify the the dna strands mm. extraordinary new um door being open to to genetic uh, awareness and the whole designer babies idea kind of was coming up around that time and say look what if parents could specifically choose traits for their unborn child and remove all the undesirable traits. Now, initially, it was thought that, look, the first frontier is more just identificating and uh, risk, right? So uh, we, we know that, you know, people with these um, DNA codes, you know, have this percentage chance of prostate cancer or breast cancer or whatever, and that's yeah. you go, okay, well, here you've got 40% chance of developing this cancer by age 60, um, but if you do X, Y, Z in terms of diet and lifestyle, you can reduce that probability down to, to 10%, right? Yeah. So that that was thought to be universally positive. That we, 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 it wouldn't change anything. Mm. It would just help us understand ourselves better to make better choices. But then Gattaca kind of like, let's think about removing that harm altogether <laughs> at <Absolutely>. birth. <laughs> And there was like a reluctancy of the parents being like, oh, like we just want our child to develop as they are. But it's kind of like your child will fall behind in society if you don't do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, you would be, even before the child's born, there'd be pressure placed upon you for being a bad parent, for not giving your child the best chance of success. And if there is one job parents have, it's to mm. do that, right? So yeah. uh, that would be place enormous pressure on parents and and you know it's it's hard enough as it is but if you're you you'd also know what they were saying is true like if you if you don't uh remove those elements of your of your child that um are harmful and everyone else has mm. then you're not competing with all of society as it is today but a society in which people's uh, gms have been you know improved yeah and the story is there's a, there's a few things to this story that are quite powerful and it doesn't provide all that many answers, but it asks amazing questions. So 
For example, Vincent, who's the protagonist here of the story, uh, he has faced prejudice his entire life because he has been unable to do it. He's got a heart condition mm. uh, that's supposed to kill him by age 30. Um, he, he's got all these you know, deficiencies. But what he has is an extraordinary determination, mm. right? Like, so he's willing to overcome everything. Now, this is a, a truly like heartfelt sort of conservative idea that if you just work hard and you know overcome the barriers, and people every day who who, who believe in this mm. will point to like you know the twelve-year-old spelling bee who four years ago came to the United States, couldn't speak a word of English, and yet can now stand up in front of people and compete. You know, how is it that this person can do it and other people can't, yeah. other than the fact that this person is dedicated and, and hardworking, right? Mm. Now, that is true to a point. Like, hard work is a critical factor. At the same time, you can't discount the, the problem on the other side. And Gattaca does gloss over this a bit. For example... Uh, people of, of lower IQs are already barred from all kinds of professions. I mean, uh, Jordan Peterson makes the point that if you have an IQ below 86, you're barred from the US military. Why? Because it's thought that uh, people with an IQ below that can't do anything in the military that isn't fundamentally counterproductive, right? Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> now, that's 10% of the population, okay? Oh, God. So we already have these uh, innate assessment characteristics that yep. are pushing people in different stories. So for those that haven't seen Gattaca, spoilers alert, um, we live in a world where it's set in the near future where people are, are having genetics altered uh, prenatally so that their children grow up with all these advantages mm. and that uh, it has reached a point, although it's officially illegal, um, basically everybody does a test of prospective employees and things on their DNA basis to see whether or not they have natural advantages that would make them better for the job. And in practice, that results in closing off entire career paths mm. for people that haven't had those improvements. And, yeah. and You basically get a scan uh, at your interview and they're like, yep, you're in. And like, where's the interview? That was the interview. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <A> genetic scan. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and that's not hard to imagine, okay, uh, because we, we already have elements of that now mm. uh, tested in different ways, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, um, like those games you have to play at interview time, mm. of those patterns, like, oh, my gosh. Like people actually hire other people to do those pattern tests mm. and they want this whole diversity and <laughs> inclusiveness, but they have this test. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah so that's that and so it's kind of a mixed message sort of movie so on the one hand is the story of this guy overcoming all of these things by fooling everybody and yet still meeting the standards mm. by uh you know extraordinary dedication and determination we take somebody as identity that meets all the criteria that's right so he conceals his own dna uh, manages to to plant dna from someone who has all these natural advantages and convinces everybody that he is this other person. That's the the no the story. While in fact he has all these physical like limitations, which he he overcomes through hard work. Mm. Uh, this is you know it's a powerful story, and you really root for the guy the whole way through the film. Um, very sympathetic hero, and one of the greatest lines of cinema. Where uh, you know he has this brother. And his brother, he's always lived in the shadow of his brother because his brother has all, like, was a designer baby and he has all these advantages. Mm. And and yet 
uh, Vincent, the, the guy with all the disadvantages, achieves much more than his brother ever did. His brother became a detective, respected, et cetera, et cetera. But he's becoming an astronaut, flying to Titan, the absolute elite of the elite. And uh, they used to have a swimming race. And the swimming race, it wasn't so much a race as a as a, a game of chicken. They would swim out as far as they could into the open sea. And then they would, uh, when they would, couldn't see shore anymore and they didn't know where they were, uh, eventually one would be afraid that they were going to drown out there and so they would turn around and go back. Mm. Uh, and Vincent uh, has gotten better than his brother at this and his brother can't understand how he can do it. His brother is taller, stronger, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah. And yet Vincent can do this more. And, and the, the line in the cinema is, I never saved anything for the journey back, i.e. he's absolutely mm. determined, gives at all for everything he does Um, and that's really inspiring but it's also unnervingly unlikely right and we uh, it has this wonderful conservative message that is genuinely I think positive to give to kids that you should work hard for things in order to succeed because that is the best advice you could do that's that's within their control right you can't control those natural things you can control your own behavior your own intentions yeah but like chop off your legs and turn to a new identity (laughs) yeah no absolutely but 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 i mean in terms of in terms of attitude it's certainly something to be encouraged yeah in terms of reality and and social uh commentary it's far less clear cut because on the one hand you can look at the the risks of um genetic manipulation and and the direction of our current technologies crispr technologies that sort of stuff Mm. that that allowed this to occur and and it is entirely possible then that in future generations not very far from now um, we will have the ability to manipulate human race in such a way that we do totally eugenicize um Mm. humanity okay yeah on the flip side, we don't have a natural selection anymore as it is, okay? Because um, previously, a lot of like infants and children that were physically weaker would never have survived adulthood. Uh, but today, through you know medical intervention, you know, premature babies can be born months early uh, and still survive. And mm-hmm. so we've overcome. We've already like through the wonders of medical technology overcome the natural selection the the infant mortality rates and things that would happen so we have actually introduced a lot of vulnerabilities into the genome and what the argument might be to say look all we're going to do for these people uh, who in previous generations would not have survived anyway yeah um, we're going to eliminate the vulnerabilities they've developed as a consequence of of um our medical technology so you know you could actually come up with a pretty weaselly argument to say we should be doing this sort of stuff now once you have the ability to do it there's going to be different attitudes from different governments i mean take china for example are they going to allow the han civilization to become genetically inferior to others like president xi is all of this if we start to see this play out this is really dark stuff and then and then, as I said, with the the IQ tests, mm. there's already elements of that today. Yeah. Um, so. And the thing is, like, if it were to happen, right, the elites would get it first. So there's always there's always going to be a, there's going to widen gap. The gap will just widen oh, extraordinarily. Like. 
amazing point that you make there. I think I think that is the the take home uh, actually from this. This is a, a, good, a good point, Charlie. So if we look at like the vaccine, for example, for for the pandemic, all the wealthy countries are getting it first, and uh, the poorer countries are probably going to have the entire disease washed through their population before they ever see a vaccine. Okay, yeah. uh, and yet. Yeah, you're right. This kind of like elite technologies, we already have, like it's 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 the movie shows you know someone within an environment, even within a household where one person has it and the other person doesn't. Mm. Uh, but in reality, it'll be societal. Like you know, yeah. we'll have Western cultures and and wealthy countries that have this advantage, and the poorer countries do not. Uh, the gap that already exists between the two. Uh, not only to do these societies dehumanize these poorer places anyway, because they're in other parts of the world yeah. they don't really understand. If we were a new breed of human, mm. right, uh, and there was that disparity, you could just imagine the contempt that people would have for these people Doesn't and the co- service class that they would put yeah. them in. Like yeah. I was going to say, like it always goes back around to history of like they'll honestly be like servants less than human, like not even. You know, and it's going to be genetically, like, not even, like, a social thing. Well, kind mm. of. It's a crossover. Ah! <laughs> okay, so what's, I guess, the biggest strengths of this movie that you see or the we- and the weaknesses of this movie? Uh, well, the weaknesses of the movie, I think, is that, you know, although Vincent is such a heroic character, mm. it is ultimately hard to believe he could do this, mm. right? Now that's kind of the point as well. Like they say in the movie, look, even if your face is everywhere, right, and they're, they're all saying they're looking for you, nobody's going to recognize you because nobody is going to believe that someone in your position could fool them for so long, right? Mm. And that's true. Um, and so the audience is encouraged to go along with that as a as a as a concept um, to really sell it, but. At the same time, like he has a terrible heart condition, right? Yeah. And like, it's 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 just very hard to see mm. how he could compete in a world where differences between people are already obvious. Yeah. Um. So that's challenging, but they sold it. I think as strongly as they could. Mm. I think the message of the film is really good. That um that even if you take that is as difficult to accept. Uh, the message of you know look don't let people crush your dreams like work hard if you believe in something give it your all um, is a good message but realistic goals and dreams is also important because otherwise you're leading for someone for crushing disappointment and and the conversation that happened early on in the film where they're at the dinner table and the dad goes look they're not going to let you be an astronaut Mm -hmm. right Um, that's that's a hard truth but you know I don't condemn him for saying that because mm. he was right you yeah. know uh and and it's something that that people are getting set up for crushing disappointment if i mean don't. it's kind of like people nowadays it's like yeah like you're not going to make it in hollywood <laughs> again like the most people like you can't really make it as an artist mm. for for the majority like right like um yeah mm. so complicated vexing thing and then and then the way relationships are, there's this the wonderful scene where these these women who find the like guys they like that steal little hairs or something from them and take them to a genetic coder to get their code to see whether or not, you know, they they were a good genetic 
fit, right? <laughs> um, totally see that happening. I mean, even today in in uh, Japan, because Japan is the most like genetically homogenous culture on earth, like the 99% of Yamato Japanese ethnically um, homogenous, mm. uh, the, there's no racism in Japan because there aren't any other races, okay? So, but they do have blood type racism, right? So uh, people based on your blood type can be prejudiced against because they see certain blood types as more desirable than others. Now, mm. there's an absurdity to that. But uh, we could totally see, you know, the differences in in genetics being a, a decisive factor yeah. in how relationships emerge and evolve and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so I think there would uh, one of the elements of the film that I think is true is I do think there'd be a significant black market trade mm. uh, in all of this stuff. Yes, um, oh, absolutely. People would, people would be concealing, you know, certain things about themselves. Yeah. Um, and then it would legitimise you know, to a degree that we already, beyond what exists today, the, yeah. the, the eradication of privacy. People would feel like they had a right to your genetic code, uh, which would be quite dangerous as well. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a powerful, caustic film, you know, that with many different layers. You can look at it. I think it has rewatchability mm. um, in order to sort of see the points of view of each character. Mm. And, and, of course, the one thing I didn't touch on is that... Um, even those with all of the advantages also suffer <laughs> suffer immensely. They are not happy people um, uh, because and 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 the the one part of the story which is grossly underestimated is Jerome's story and, and Anton's story, where if you don't realize your potential, despite being having all the advantages and expectations, and I see this in real life as well. Um, if, if someone is promising, okay, yeah. and they've got talent and, and skills, IQ, IQ, all the rest of it, and they are capable of achieving great things, but don't, mm. uh, the, the 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 survivability of that person is at mm. stake, right? They they often will be suicidal, and of course, spoiler, that's what happens with Jerome. He tried to kill himself, which is why he was disabled. Mm. Um, and then succeeds at the end of the film because he sees Vincent uh, go on to achieve great things. And, and to be fair, Jerome is given some closure there. It's like he yeah. feels like he's fulfilled his purpose through Vincent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I okay. One thing I loved about it is again the dependency on technology and just how much of it they depended on the machine to tell them if they were pure like genetic or not, even if they mm. they could see that it was not true. Yeah, yeah. Like Jerome's like. Um, like he gets tested by this random person because they're doing audit and he's in a wheelchair and it's like you're this person and you're an astronaut and but you're in a wheelchair it doesn't say that he's like what do you think i am like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course i can be that like and he's yeah. like okay okay buddy okay like mm. even that so they they trusted the machine more than they trusted themselves like you know and it's kind of it was a definitely interesting take on yeah our dependency on technology and yeah um and yeah, and then only only what the love interest could actually see through. Like this is not the same person, and yet you know, mm. oh, such an interesting, yeah, so great film. And I, I I do think about it more and more. I mean, throughout the week, and I was like, oh wow, like and there was this and there was that. Um, yeah, definitely a, a worthy rewatch. Mm. Um, knowing what I got into, but no, good choice, Crispin. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yep. we'll continue the journey. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so this is 80, 60? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, final thoughts. Let's wrap this up. Final thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So as the whole world is well aware, uh, Prince Philip has passed away. There's a funeral today. I've seen some photos mm. emerge uh, from uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, and others there. Mm. It's, it looks like a terribly sad funeral because of uh, the social distancing things that it makes it feel very isolating. Yeah. Uh, but 73 years of marriage and in a world where like celebrity marriages can be measured in days, uh, 73 years of absolute public exposure, 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the world and from every single report, a terribly happy marriage. Um, amazing, extraordinary thing to see uh, uh, with the pressures that they're under. Uh, and in fact, uh, I will recount one anecdote from Prince Philip. Um, he was asked, oh, you know, have you ever thought of divorcing Queen Elizabeth? And he's like, divorce? Never. Murder? Often. <laughs> uh, just a very happy marriage. And, uh, you know, I'm a pretty cynical person. I'm a romantic, but I have a cynical side. And I look at all the, the statistics and problems and grave issues and stuff that, that marriages have. And I tell you what, if, if Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip can could with the the pressures of being head of state of the entire Commonwealth, mm-hmm. keep it together with all of the traumas that that family goes through. Mm. Um, I mean, there's hope for us all. So, uh, great veil, uh, Prince Philip, for uh, a life of service. Another another point just to make about that quickly is that you know people talk about like you know patriarchy and all of this. Prince Philip stood behind Queen Elizabeth for all of those decades mm. and you know he made some gaffy comments and funny things over the years but but no one even his staunchest critics could say that he big noted himself in front of queen elizabeth like mm. queen, like he he stood behind her mm. as the monarch for all of those years yeah uh no one doubts mm. that she was like the head of the household yeah, uh, and, and he did that willingly, and for the sake of public service, and probably for the for the relationship itself. Um, uh, you know, a great thing to do. So I think I think people can't discount these counterexamples, um, mm. and this is a big one. So, uh, and hopefully, and and no doubt the Queen will continue on as as she is. She's invincible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's an unspeakable loss. It's a loss that I hope I never even understand. Mm. Uh, and, but, you know, she's got those, she's got those 73 years to hold on to. So. Mm, yeah, no, no, mm. for sure, for sure. And actually on that same note, like I went to dinner and it was on the same night they announced the death of um, Prince Philip and my, my friends are typical English people. Like mm. they, yeah, they're very proud of England and the culture and they were like, I am so sad today. Prince Philip died. Like they were like genuinely like so hurt. And I guess obviously I'm not English, but I was like, wow, like people are very proud, proud of their monarchy, proud of being English. And it was like a way of just like grieving. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, not to take anything away from it, 
But man, it made me really reinforce that why our video with Megan Mark has like skyrocketed lately. I don't know why. I read it like a few months ago. It was just, I don't know why you made that video, but it was whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really reinforced that. Like, you know, like we should be proud of England <laughs> like and the monarchy. And it's like entrenched in our culture and it's something, yeah, we shouldn't shame it. Um, so it definitely made me understand that a lot more mm. given her response to it um yeah all the way in australia um and then another thing i guess and i think it's definitely a dawn on me is having political conversations outside dangerous policy is hard <laughs> like it is and it makes i don't know about you but maybe because maybe you engage with it all the time but i think this realize made me reflect and like think about i need to have these more often because it makes my heart race so quickly once I'm in a situation where somebody's like asking me a question and challenging my ideas, which I'm fine with, but it's just kind of like, wow, like to be in it is mm. a whole different ballpark than talking about it. Um, especially when I when I introduce the channel to a couple of my friends and they're like asking questions and they're on a completely different political side, which is fine, but they were definitely a bit confronting in a way that I'm like, I need to stay stoic. <laughs> and, it's, look, it's hard to do because, you know, you're right. There, there, there are two problems with people, with dealing with people that are that are like that, right? One, they're often challenging things that you care about. And if you yeah. care about something, you will feel it, right? And you'll want to fight for it. Uh, and the second is that they might be saying things to you in such a way that really gets under your skin in terms of, you know, on a personal level, right? Mm. You want to respond personally. So it, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to respond gracefully and articulately um, and with low temperature when people are in your face. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm not saying at all I'm perfect in that respect, but I, I agree that that is absolutely an ideal if you can do that. Um, yeah, mm. especially as people that you care about a lot as well and you see them day to day and then suddenly you get in that conversation and it's just it, the dynamic changes so quickly so yeah i'm working on that but gosh like it yeah i think i need to practice i think it, like, practicing is a big thing reading more and practicing engaging and being open to those ideas and not taking it as an attack on me but just to attack on the idea <laughs> really <laughs> absolutely but, yeah okay that's all the time we have for today thank you for sticking around um any questions any feedback please leave them down below subscribe if you haven't already on our road to 1000 um and it's been yeah it's been great like um yeah anything else no no thank you and I'll, yeah we'll see you uh, in the next video thank yeah, you very much see you next time